the National Archives podcast series, Magna Carta, Law, Liberty and Legacy, presented by Julian Harrison. This talk was recorded on the 13th of August 2015 at the National Archives, Kew. Good afternoon. Well, a very nice day, I think, to uh, be here and having a talk, I think, with all the rain pouring outside. Um, 2015 is a a year full of very important anniversaries. We had the 200th anniversary of Waterloo in June, Agincourt, 600th anniversary is yet to come in October. But perhaps the most high-profile commemoration this year is the 800th anniversary of the sealing of Magna Carta, the Great Charter of Liberties granted by King John to his barons at Runnymede on the 15th of June 1215, which has come to be seen around the world as the foundation of many of the rights and freedoms that we hold dear today. As many of you will know, I hope, the National Archives holds many of the key documents which illuminate the background to the Charter and its enactment. We unfortunately don't have a 1215 Charter, um, but we do have copies of the 1225 and the 1297 reissues in which the text um, became finalised. Um, some of you will have attended our Magna Carta events this year. We had uh, a liberties discussion, we had an academic panel debate, and we also had 120 school children here on the anniversary of the sealing of the Charter to uh, commemorate that anniversary. So to round off our activities in perfect style, um, I'd like to welcome Julian Harrison from the British Library. Um, Julian is curator of medieval manuscripts and one of the lead curators of the Magna Carta Law Liberty Legacy exhibition. Um, The exhibition, I think we can say, is one of the most important held in the UK for many years and has been a focal point for national celebration of the Charter and its legacy. And as Julian will explain, the exhibition showcases uh, many of the key documents from the early 13th century, but also explores the lasting legacy of the Charter through to the modern day. Many of the documents on display as well um, have been online and on loan from the National Archives, and uh, Julian will talk about that as well. But before I introduce um, Julian to you and he commences his um, talk, I'd like to introduce Scott McKendrick, who is Head of Western Heritage Collections at the British Library. I just wanted to say a few words, a, a sort of prologue to what Julian's going to tell you. As you've heard, uh, 2015 has been a momentous year, not least for Magna Carta. It's not often that 800th birthdays come round, so we should celebrate that. Uh, the anniversary of the granting of Magna Carta in 1215 has been celebrated not just in the UK, but worldwide, uh, from Australia to the United States, where, of course, it's hugely important and uh, possibly better known, uh, and from Canada to Japan. But much of the focus of these commemorations is centred, quite rightly, closer to home on those institutions, including the British Library and the National Archives, which are custodians of the uniquely important medieval manuscripts of Magna Carta. So, in February this year, the four surviving copies of King John's 1215 Magna Carta were brought together for the very first time, united for three days at the British Library and for one further day at the House of Lords. And in March, the Library opened Magna Carta, Law, Liberty and Legacy, the largest exhibition ever devoted to Magna Carta. This has indeed been the most successful exhibition that the Library has ever staged which we are uh, very pleased, needless to say. To date, 
in fact, to this very day, um, more than 100,000 visitors have attended the exhibition, which has broken a new record for the library's exhibitions at St Pancras. These range from school groups, uh, members of the general public, uh, heads of state, ambassadors, high commissioners, and Hollywood actors. Uh, in one w week alone, I have it on good authority, colleagues have spotted in the exhibition Chelsea Clinton, Meryl Streep, and Gail from Coronation Street. So <laughs> we, um, we've made a real breakthrough, I think. <laughs> so putting together an exhibition of this magnitude has been a major undertaking. When selecting and preparing the items on display, the library was able to call upon the goodwill and expertise of numerous institutions in Britain, France and the USA. And one of the key lenders to the exhibition is the National Archives. And it's my great pleasure to acknowledge that support today on behalf of the British Library and perhaps most importantly on behalf of all those who have visited our exhibition over the past few months. Like the British Library, the National Archives has an outstanding track record of lending its collection items to other exhibitions. Only the other month I was up in Lincoln and saw that in full evidence, uh, both institutions lending to an important uh, exhibition at Lincoln. A collaboration of this kind has huge mutual benefits. The borrowing institution is able to enrich the content of its exhibition, placing its own collection items in a broader context. And in return, the lenders are able to introduce their items to new audiences and to foster new research into the subject matter. For good historical reasons and entirely valid current purposes, major parts of our shared cultural heritage are kept in many different places. And given the right context and circumstances, placing distributed artefacts temporarily together offers unique opportunities. Visitors can, for example, gain a richer understanding of how individual objects were made, how they were used, and who they may have influenced. Visitors can also begin to make creative and even unexpected connections between objects. So it's a very much a, a sort of open offer that one gives to visitors. It's, not, it's, it's there for them to make of what they, they wish of it as much as what we tell them about it. Magna Carta Law, Liberty and Legacy was more than four years in the making. The curators of the exhibition, Julian and Claire Bray, together with our conservators, loan registrars and numerous other colleagues are immensely grateful for all the assistance that they've been given over that time by their counterparts at the National Archives. Today, Julian, who curated the exhibition with Claire, will preview the exhibition. He will focus on the way it was put together and in particular on the critical contribution of the items loaned by the National Archives. Thank you. It has been my great pleasure and privilege this year to be one of the curators of what is the largest and most significant exhibition ever devoted to Magna Carta. And here it is. Here is one of the four surviving manuscripts of the 1215 copy of Magna Carta as granted by King John at Runmead on the 15th of June 1215. This year it is celebrating its 800th birthday. And as you can see, it's not the most prepossessing document in history. It contains about 3,500 words of medieval Latin. 
and it's written on parchment. There was a lecture recently when the lecturer informed her audience rather proudly that Magna Carta is written on moleskin. Now, I have to kind of like let you pause for a moment and just consider that. Moles are very, very tiny. <laughs> if Magna Carta had been written on moleskin, it would have been a gigantic mole. Maybe the famous extinct Runnymede mole, because Magna Carta is, in fact, written on sheepskin. And when it was first granted by King John in 1215, it was simply a peace treaty between the king on the one hand and a group of discontented barons on the other. We never intended to have the long-lasting legacy that we are celebrating and commemorating in 2015. So why was Magna Carta really important? Well, a few of its clauses are still valid in English law today, one of which states, I'm going to summarise, no man shall be arrested or imprisoned save by the lawful judgment of their equals or by the law of land. To nobody shall we sell, to nobody deny or delay right or justice. That's a hugely important principle, something that we often take for granted today. Why Magna Carta is really important is because it established for the very first time in England that everybody was subject to the law. And nobody, not even our rulers, not even the monarch, was above the law. So we have a rather ironic way of doing things in Britain. How do you commemorate a document that constrained the monarchy? Well, we invite the Queen <laughs> to come to Runnymede on the 15th of June this year. She attended along with representatives of the United States government, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Prime Minister. In the top left-hand corner here, you can see Prince William, who actually came to uh, open a new artwork at Runnymede. I'll just give you a clue, he's actually sitting on it. <laughs> Of course, the American Bar Memorial at Runnymede was uh, re-inaugurated on the 15th of June. That's it. it looks like a spaceship taking off. That's the ABA Memorial. And of course, in Britain, if you ever do a big event, you always have to have a fly past by the Red Arrows. Now, rather ironic, of course, as well, because where everybody was gathered on the 15th of June, including myself, wasn't actually at Runnymede. In the Middle Ages, there were two meadows on the River Thames, one was called Longmead, the other was called Runnymead. Where the National Trust today believes is the site of Runnymead, that's actually two miles further down the river from the original site. And the exhibition that the British Library has mounted this year actually examines some of these strange uses and abuses of Magna Carta over the years, over the centuries, over the past 800 years. The Queen commemorated Magna Carta on the 15th of June, and uh, this is how political cartoonists the next day represented that Magna Carta, soft, strong, and surprisingly long. Now, as Scott McKendrick has already told you, this year has been a momentous year for the British Library. And in February, we brought together for the very first time the four surviving manuscripts of the 1215 Magna Carta, two of which are held at the British Library here in London, one of which belongs to Salisbury Cathedral and the other belongs to Lincoln Cathedral. The manuscript from Salisbury, we were always told by the cathedral authorities, had never actually left the precincts of that cathedral. But I actually know that that's not completely true. Because when we recently went there, they told us privately that their former librarian, a lady named Elsie, 
used to take Magna Carta home with her every evening <laughs> in the basket of her bicycle. <laughs> first link in Magna Carta there, first one belonging to Salisbury, that's the archivist of Salisbury Cathedral, and that's Chris Woods, who's a conservator who works for Lincoln. And uh, rather, rather brilliantly, the four people who stationed this photograph all turned up wearing different colour jumpers. <laughs> so this is our conservative gallery, he's wearing a light blue top, Kimiko in green, Emily yellow, Chris in red. I'm told that that was completely coincidental, but it made, made for one of the greatest publicity shots ever relating to Magna Carta. So we held a series of events, three-day events at the British Library. We had a publicly balloted day where over 50,000 people worldwide applied for the opportunity to see the four manuscripts of Magna Carta side by side. We have people applying from Bolivia, Bangladesh, Hong Kong, um, the Gambia, worldwide people applied and some of them were successful being given tickets to see the four documents together. But of course, at the same time, we are preparing our significant and extraordinarily brilliant and brilliantly curated exhibition about Magna Carta. This just shows some of the behind-the-scenes shots involving our exhibition staff, involving our photographers, our conservators. As Scott mentioned, this exhibition was more than four years in the making, and a cast of literally hundreds at the British Library were involved in its preparation. But we're also extraordinarily grateful for being supported by the staff of other institutions, particularly, for example, here at the National Archives. Here's another shot of one of our conservatives. That's Gavin himself. He's changed his top just for this particular shot. He's not wearing blue. And here is a conservator from Canterbury Cathedral Library, one of our other lenders to the exhibition, installing one of the items for the exhibition. Again, putting together an exhibition that requires a great deal of thought and preparation. How do you actually interpret the documents? For example, we commissioned a series of films, what we call Talking Heads, whereby experts and famous people gave their views about Magna Carta. And these here shown on the screen are for all those people. You can actually see them talking in a Magna Carta exhibition at the British Library, talking about Magna Carta, including Aung San Suu Kyi, Bill Clinton, William Hague, and this is Shami Chakrabarti from Liberty. We also put together a website, bl.uk slash Magna Carta. This contains a series of articles, essays relating to Magna Carta. If you go on this particular page and click on where it says collection items, you can actually see images of every item represented in our exhibition together with descriptions of them. This is actually a really important resource for us because this is a part of our long-term legacy putting these objects on show. So even after the 1st of September this year, people will still be able to see the items which were held in the exhibition at the British Library. Again, there was a publicity campaign, posters cropped up everywhere on buses, on the tube. This is at Victoria's Station on the London Underground. And then the exhibition was opened at the British Library on the 12th of March this year by this gentleman here, His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, there he has been shown around the exhibition by Dr Claire Bray, my co-curator and the chief executive of the British Library, Rowley Keaton. And there he is being presented with the exhibition catalogue by Tessa Blackstone, who is the chairman of the British Library. And he made a very touching speech at the end of the exhibition, which he told the audience that Magna Carta is something that here in Britain we can be ever so slightly proud of. I think that was rather kind of a nice note to end 
his speech on. And then the exhibition opened to the public. This is just a shot. This is part of a medieval part of the exhibition, including some items which I'm going to talk about in a few moments. And again, another shot of how busy, how popular our exhibition has been. We actually have some breaking news because today, literally at five minutes past 12, we actually had our 100,000 pay-in visitor to our exhibition. It's actually a gentleman who came all the way from Portland, Oregon to see the Magna Carta exhibition. It was the very first time he'd been to the British Library. I think he was probably quite astonished. He was standing in the line and they came up. I think they actually presented him with a gift from our shop, which was a, a commemorative Magna Carta bath duck. <laughs> but anyhow, 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 I hope they did something slightly better as well. But also, also I should point out that today on the British Library's Medieval Manuscripts blog, we've also put up a blog post actually detailing and describing all the items loaned by the National Archives to the British Library exhibition. I should tell you that our blog has a very large audience since this month alone, since the 1st of August, we've had 100 and 25,000 visits to our blog. So this is a very good way of publicising how institutions such as the British Library and the National Archives work together for the mutual benefit, not just of visitors' exhibition, but researchers and many other fields. So, Magna Carta exhibition at the British Library contains about 202 different items. And unusually for the British Library, they're not simply books and manuscripts, but we have lots of other artefacts in the exhibition. We have cartoons, paintings, newspapers, we have a few videos and audio clips. And the National Archives is an extraordinarily good company because among the other lenders to the exhibition are the British Museum, York Public Library, the V&A, various cathedrals, and also the Royal Collection. I'm actually particularly fond of this image. This is actually from one of the British Library's own medieval manuscripts. This is an illuminated manuscript which depicts King John on his horse hunting. And if you look very carefully at the bottom of the picture, you can actually see the little rabbits darting into the horse, darting into their burrows in order to hide from King John. <coughs> so what I'm going to do this afternoon is take you through the exhibition. And in particular, I'm going to focus on some of the items that the National Archives so kindly loaned to us. So I'm going to start with the medieval part of the exhibition. I've got two items on this particular screen. One of them is made by a monk of St Albans named Matthew Paris. And Matthew Paris was a contemporary of King John. This page shows four of the kings of England. And King John is represented in the bottom left-hand corner. There he is holding a church, the Church of Beaulieu Abbey in Hampshire, which he founded in the year 1204. He actually wished to be buried there though that didn't actually happen. Now, Matthew Paris wasn't particularly fond of King John, for very good reason. Very few of his contemporaries did like King John. King John has the reputation of being one of the worst kings in history. And I should tell you that it's very difficult to rehabilitate him. Even modern historians are adamant that they really are reluctant, even unlike Richard III, to try and find any of King John's redeeming characteristics. King John, for example, is alleged to have murdered his own nephew, to have starved to death the wife and children of one of his opponents. He also had the minister's justice in a highly arbitrary manner, which is why the barons finally rebel against him in 1215. Matthew Paris wrote what I think is one of the worst epitaphs of anybody in history about King John. King John dies in 1216. Matthew Paris says this about King John. 
Falvohelis. Falvohelis. It is made fouler still by the presence of John. That's how contemporaries viewed him in the 13th century. If you actually look on the right-hand side here, you actually saw it a moment ago being installed in our exhibition by the Conservative from Canterbury Cathedral. I love to tell people that this is an archbishop's pointy hat, but it is in fact the mitre of Hubert Walter, who was King John's first Archbishop of Canterbury. And it was actually discovered in the Archbishop's tomb at Canterbury when it was opened in 1890. Together with this mitre we have on display in our exhibition, the Archbishop's crozier, a beautifully pair, beautifully embroidered pair of silk slippers, and other artifacts from the Archbishop's tomb. Rather significantly, after that Archbishop Hubert Walter dies in 1205, King John falls out big time with the church. He refuses the election of the new Archbishop of Canterbury, and the Pope places what's called an interdict on England, whereby for a period of about five years, nobody in England could be baptised, or married, or buried according to the rites of the church. Until finally, King John is forced to surrender the overlordship of his kingdom to the Pope, in return for granting the Pope an annual tribute of 1,000 marks. This is all very interesting, but the bishops and the archbishops are also present at running Mead in 1215. Now, we come to the first item of the exhibition loaned to us by the National Archives, and it's shown here on the right of the screen. These are actually known as tally sticks, or tally stocks is their official name. And these are medieval receipts. These are receipts kept by the medieval exchequer denoting payments which are made to the crown. They're made of hazelwood, and along their edges are these little notches. And each notch, the size of the notch, represents a different sum of money which has been paid back to the crown. Along their edges, you'll see inscriptions which actually name the person in question who owed a debt to the crown. These are actually rather interesting, I think, because it was the burning of tally sticks in the basement of the House of Lords in 1834 which led to the burning down of Parliament in the 19th century. And the item on the left of the screen we've actually borrowed from Parliament itself. This is our poster boy. This is one of the statues of the Magna Carta barons after Parliament was destroyed in the 19th century and they were rebuilding it. A committee was formed, typically. A committee was formed to commission new works of art to adorn the new Houses of Parliament. And it's Prince Albert who is credited with the idea of having a series of statues of the barons positioned in the House of Lords to look down on parliamentary proceedings. And this is a baron named Geoffrey de Mandeville. He has a very stern expression. That's because the architect of Parliament, Charles Barry, actually said that the barons should look stern and unsmiling. Although it's also probably the fact that he's actually had to listen to 150 years of debates in the House of Lords. Here's a rather interesting backstory of Geoffrey de Mandeville. Um, king John, one of his first acts when he became king, was to divorce his first wife, but he kept that wife hostage for a period of 12 to 13 years, so he sold her off in marriage. He ransomed her off to the highest bidder, and he forced this man, Geoffrey de Mandeville, to pay the sum of 20,000 marks for the privilege of marrying King John's first wife. And he had to pay for his wife in instalments. He had a mortgage on his wife. And because he failed to keep up with repayments, King John confiscated all his lands. 
And that's why Geoffrey de Mandeville was one of the barons who rebelled against King John in 1215. Now, we do have some very interesting documents in our British Library exhibition, particularly the one on the left. This is a document uniquely held by the British Library called the Articles of the Barons. It's actually the manifesto that the barons presented to King John at Runnymede in 1215. And it actually contains the first occurrence of that most important clause of Magna Carta, no man shall be arrested or imprisoned, etc. However, that clause actually says, no free man shall be arrested or imprisoned, because the barons were actually particularly interested in society at at large. Instead, Magna Carta, when first granted, only applied to the elite, the highest echelons of society, although interpretations of Magna Carta have subsequently changed over the past 800 years. And on the right, we have here the seal matrix, silver seal matrix, of the leader of a baronial party named Robert Fitzwater, who styled himself Marshal of the Army of God. We borrowed this from the British Museum. I rather like this seal matrix. This is how, in the Middle Ages, a document would have been sealed, making a wax seal from this, made from this impression. Whereas Robert Fitzwater, though he has seen conquering a dragon on the bottom of the screen. But this is one, I think, of the most important items in our exhibition. I doubt that people give it much attention. We borrowed it, I have to say, from the National Archives. This is a note written in July 1215 on the back of a patent roll. And this particular document actually lists who received the manuscripts of Magna Carta in the summer of 1215. It's not particularly widely known, but it actually tells you that in the summer of 1215, 13 manuscripts of Magna Carta were distributed. That's why almost certainly one manuscript was sent to each cathedral in England so that it could be read out in public. On the 24th of June 1215, two manuscripts of Magna Carta were given to the Bishop of Lincoln, one was given to the Bishop of Worcester, and four were given to a man named Elias of Durham. And then on the 22nd of July, that's over a month after Magna Carta had been granted, Elias has given another six manuscripts to give out. So in total, there may have been as many as 13 copies of Magna Carta made in 1215. Now, we're pretty confident that in our exhibition, we do have something that was present at the field of Runnymede in June 1215, because here on the left of the screen, we actually have in our exhibition, borrowed from Worcester Museum, two of King John's own teeth. We also have his thumb bone. Here are the teeth. They were taken from King John's tomb when it was opened at Worcester Cathedral in 1797. We know that thousands of people thronged to see the tomb when it was opened. We also know that people started in secret to remove King John's body parts. That note on the top left, right-hand corner, reproduced that, actually informs us that William Wood, a stationer's apprentice, removed those two teeth of King John before they were returned to Worcester Cathedral in the 19th century. Now, if you read your Ladybird book of King John and Magna Carta, you'll see a description which says that when King John was forced to sign to grant the document, he gnashed his teeth. Those are the teeth that King John gnashed in 1215. Now, lots of people don't realise that Magna Carta, in its original manifestation, is only valid for a period of 10 weeks. King John, devious man that he was, 
actually wrote in secret to the Pope behind the Baron's backs, told them he'd been forced to grant Magna Carta against his will. The Pope agreed he issued a document named a bull, a papal bull, in which he described Magna Carta as shameful, demeaning, illegal, and unjust. And he declared Magna Carta to be null and void of all validity forever. So what happened next? The barons rebelled for the second time. They invited the French to invade England. What very few people realised that the French actually occupied London. They invaded England and occupied London for two years, from 1215 onwards. And I told King John dies in 1216. The country is in a very precarious state. When John dies at Newark, Nottinghamshire, in October of 1216, he is succeeded by his nine-year-old son, Henry III. Now, can you imagine that your leader, your autocratic ruler, is a nine-year-old boy, Henry III? The barons have rebelled, the French have invaded, the then regent named William Marshall has a masterstroke. He decides to issue a new version, revised version of Magna Carta. Gets the barons back on board, they kick the French out of England, and then during the 13th century, new manuscripts, revised versions of Magna Carta are issued by the kings of England. And this is one of them, it's highly important We've actually borrowed it from the National Archives. Also, if you see the shelf mark here, it has DL shelf mark, actually stands for the Duchy of Lancaster. So we've also been given the permission by the Duchy of Lancaster to borrow this item for our exhibition. This is the final <coughs> confirmation of Magna Carta granted by King Edward I in 1297. And it's hugely important because it's this text, Magna Carta, which was entered onto the statute roll in 1297. And clauses of Magna Carta have been on the statute book ever since. And on um, just fair for good measure, there is um, just a random list of going around the exhibition together with my colleague, Dr. Claire Bray, and that's that particular manuscript that we've just seen here, the lineup of the medieval versions of Magna Carta, and this is the National Archives, Duchy of Lancaster, manuscript of the 1297 Magna Carta and we are hugely grateful to the National Archives for lending us this particular item as well as all the others because for the very first time we were able to show all the medieval versions of Magna Carta side by side. One of them borrowed from Bodin Library, one of them from the Archive National in Paris, one of them actually held by the British Library itself but the one, the missing piece, was the National Archives manuscript of Magna Carta. Now, our exhibition covers the 800-year history and legacy of Magna Carta, and with our whirlwind history, we're now into the 16th and 17th centuries. And the person on the left here is really important in the story of Magna Carta. His name is Sir Edward Cook. He was Lord Chief Justice during the reign of James I. And Edward Cook uses Magna Carta to challenge the autocratic rule of the Stuart kings, James I and Charles I. He also writes a series of legal treatises called the Institutes, in which he uses Magna Carta, which he says it embodies the English constitution. And he particularly picks up that clause of Magna Carta, no free man shall be arrested or imprisoned, save by the lawful judgment of their equals, or by the law of the land. It's Edward Cook who actually says that that clause of Magna Carta should apply to everybody. 
should apply to everybody at large. And that's a really significant development. Now, Charles I doesn't particularly like this. And he retaliates in 1634. He writes this letter to the Secretary of State, Sir Francis Wimbank, in which he commands the Secretary of State to go to Edward Cook's property and to remove all his books, documents, and manuscripts because he is still writing his treatises on Magna Carta. The government, under the command of King Charles I, actually has all those papers confiscated. Cook actually dies that selfsame year, and his books aren't actually published until the 1640s during the English Civil Wars. This is actually the letter that Charles I wrote commanding the confiscation of Cook's library. You can actually see Charles's signature there in the top margin. And again, that is on loan to a British Library exhibition from the National Archives. Now, we do have a number of other important documents in our exhibition. And apart from Magna Carta, we do have, for the very first time in the United Kingdom, manuscripts of the United States Declaration of Independence, shown here on the left, and also the US Bill of Rights. This is the US Declaration of Independence, which we borrowed from New York Public Library. It's actually rather significant. It's not the final version of US Declaration of Independence with all the signatures at the bottom. This is Thomas Jefferson's own manuscript of the Declaration of Independence. It contains the original draft of the text before it was presented to and then amended and finally ratified by his fellow delegates at Philadelphia in July 1776. It's rather remarkable. If you look at it very closely, certain of the words and phrases are underlined. They denote passages which were later removed from a final definitive version of the Declaration of Independence. One of those passages, which has subsequently been underlined, actually contains Thomas Jefferson's original proposal that the slave trade should be abolished. In the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson described the slave trade as an execrable commerce. And he called George III a tyrant who transported men from one hemisphere of the world to another. Sadly, Jefferson's fellow delegates disagreed that was struck out of the Declaration of Independence, but that could have changed the course of history. The Declaration of Independence doesn't explicitly mention Magna Carta, but many of its concepts and the idea, for example, taxation without representation, they all hark back to Magna Carta. Just for good measure, on the right, we have one of the very early printed copies of the Declaration of Independence. It's called a Dunlap Printing of the Declaration of Independence. There are only 26 of these which survive around the world. One of them was found in a car boot sale, apparently in America. At the beginning of the 21st century, it was sold at auction for $8 million. And next year, this particular one was found here at Kew at the National Archive. Sally can't be sold, <laughs> but this again is on display in our exhibition. So there are some weird and wonderful stories relating to Magna Carta. As I mentioned on the 15th of June, we assume that everybody gathered at Runnymede, of course we were all in the wrong place, but in the 18th century we actually proposed to erect this monument at Runnymede. As you can see, it looks remarkably like Nelson's Column. Would have dwarf act would have been absolutely huge. Magna Carta, so running mead, of course, it's a floodplain. If you build something like this on a floodplain, almost certainly it would have sunk into the sand. But this monument 
was proposed by the politician Charles James Fox. And he was lampooned by his opponents as shown in this engraving here, which we borrowed from a British museum. It shows a fox being hanged from the gallows and he's excreting something out of his bottom. And if you look very closely at the caption, it says that the fox is excreting runny meat. And in the same section of our exhibition, we borrowed this poster from the National Archives. It was produced by the Chartists during the 1830s. The Chartists were a movement who wished to extend the franchise to the greater population, and they hot back, particularly to Magna Carta, the very name of their movement, the Chartists, and the People's Charter. There's actually a little story about this particular item in our exhibition. We have on display a couple of books from the library's own collections relating to the Chartist movement, including the very first printed edition of the so-called People's Charter. But we didn't actually have anything which was really sort of visually impressive. And it was towards the end of us scoping for our exhibition. I came here to research some items, and just as I was leaving the building, I saw a stand in the entrance hall here. It was for Friends of the National Archives. And as a backdrop, like we have in this room here today, they had this particular poster on display, the People's Charter. And as soon as I got back to British Library, I said to our researcher, why didn't you find this? No, I said to him, please go back to the National Archives, see if you can call up this item, see what it's like. It's actually huge, it's very impressive, the lettering is extremely bold. We love it, it's a really visually impressive item in our exhibition. It's asking people to come to a public meeting on the sands at Carlisle in 1839, particularly requested no persons come to a meeting armed with any offensive weapons of any description. And also, but no advantage may be taken of them by the authorities. It's hoped the master manufacturers will see the propriety of allowing their work people to attend the meeting. It's a bit like the chief strike at the And this is another item we borrowed from the National Archives our exhibition. This is in the Empire and After section of the Magna Carta exhibition at the British Library and this is a document which dates from 1840 and it's known as the Treaty of Waitangi. Treaty of Waitangi was granted by the British in the name of Queen Victoria in February 1840 granting rights to the Maori people and the person who translated it into the Maori language as is this copy here actually described it as the Maori Magna Carta. And it was taken around the North and South Islands of New Zealand in the 1840s, and several hundred of the chieftains put their names to the bottom of this particular document. There's more than one copy, but this is one of the earliest versions of the Maori Magna Carta, actually in the Maori language. But this is another item that we've borrowed from the National Archives or Exhibition. And this is sort of one of the rather incendiary items in our exhibition. It dates from 1947, and it relates to a proposal that across the British Empire and the United States of America, on 15th of June each year, there should be celebrated something known as Magna Carta Day. Now you might imagine that people always venerate Magna Carta, and they always determine to promote it at any cost. I know that Scott and I have worked with some of those people this year. However, this particular letter was sent by one civil servant to another 
1947, in which he poo-pooed the idea of people celebrating Magna Carta in the Empire. So there's a possibility of celebration Magna Carta Day in the colonial empire might be used for purposes very different from those which we just desire. Some colonies were ill-disposed politicians. Ill-disposed politicians are ever on the lookout for opportunities to misrepresent our good intentions. A celebration might cause embarrassment. There's a general danger that the colonial peoples might be led into an uncritical enthusiasm for a document they not read, but which they presume to contain guarantees of every so-called right they might be interested at that moment in claiming. So wrote one civil servant to another in 1947. I'm particularly fond of this document we borrow from the National Archives because it does set Magna Carta in a different context. Probably never, never designed for public consumption. That's why you can come and look at it at the British Library until the 1st of September and you can also come and see it later in the collections here at the National Archives. We do have some other incredible artefacts in the exhibition. For example, we do have the only photographs which survive of King John granting Magna Carta in 1215. They're probably some of the oldest photographs in history. There he is having his crown adjusted in the top left-hand corner. There, Archbishop Langton stand beside him, the barons are presented here in Magna Carta. I particularly like this scene, um, showing uh, a, a noblewoman leaving her caravan in 1215. Actually, this is all nonsense. These are photographs taken from a pageant which was held at Runningmead in 1934, where 5,000 members of the local community from Egham, 200 horses and four elephants reenacted the granting of Magna Carta. It's quite a spectacular occasion. But we also have some very interesting other stories relating to the political, iconic, symbolic significance of Magna Carta. One of them is actually shown by the paper the printed paper which you can see on the left-hand side of the screen actually relates to one of, I think, the most important episodes of Magna Carta. This is a cabinet paper dated from March 1941. It relates to a proposal by the British cabinet who were trying to decide how to persuade the United States of America to enter World War II before Pearl Harbor. And they decided to give the Americans what's described in these papers as a piece of old parchment of no intrinsic value whatever, rather than worse for wear. They actually proposed to give the Americans a manuscript of the original 1215 Magna Carta in return for young American men laying down their lives for liberties and freedoms. What nobody in British cabinet, including Winston Churchill, had actually considered is that the manuscript they tried to give away didn't belong to them. It belonged to Lincoln Cathedral. Nobody seems to have asked Lincoln's permission to give away the most prized possession. But it was probably the one and only occasion in history that one nation has tried to persuade another to enter war on its behalf in return for an old piece of parchment. Another people, of course, have latched onto the significance of Magna Carta. In our exhibition, we feature the stories of Gandhi and Nelson Mandela. Eleanor Roosevelt is shown here. She was one of the people who was fundamental in drawing up the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which she's holding here in 1948. And she said the Universal Declaration of Human Rights could become 
the Magna Carta of all men everywhere. So I think our exhibition is really important because it's truly an exhibition where you get two for the price of one because we have not just one but two manuscripts of the 1215 Magna Carta. And this is one of them, it's shown here on the right of the screen. This is the copy of Magna Carta which we now know was sent to Canterbury Cathedral in 1215. It's also the only surviving manuscript of the original Magna Carta which still has seal of King John attached at the bottom. Sadly, however, this document was very badly damaged in a fire in the 18th century. But they did make an engraving of it around the time of the fire, actually shown here on the left-hand side of the screen. The shields, coloured shields here are actually an embellishment, but it would have been a particularly fine document. That's what Magna Carta would have looked like in 1215. And last year at the British Library, we actually undertook what's known as multi-spectral imaging on this manuscript, even though today most of its text is illegible with the naked eye, using UV light, infrared light, you can now recover more of the text than has actually been possible to read for the past 200 years. And then we're back to the beginning. We're back to the British Library's second manuscript of the 1215 Magna Carta. We don't know where this manuscript was held during the Middle Ages, but we do know that it was found in a London tailor shop in the 17th century. That's actually rather distressing news. What was it doing at a tailor shop? Almost certainly it had been discarded, thrown away, consigned as waste. What would a tailor have used parchment for in the 17th century? Possibly to line gentlemen's collars. Such would have been Magna Carta's fate. And just one other feature I want to point out to this particular document. Two features very quickly. Along the bottom margin, there is a particular clause of Magna Carta which a scribe actually omitted when copying it out. And a conservative estimate would have taken about 10 hours to copy out this document. The scribe actually made a mistake. In the Middle Ages, if a royal scribe made a mistake when copying out an official document, he would have had to start again. But in the case of Magna Carta, they were so desperate to make as many copies as possible in as short a time as possible, that that particular scribe wrote the offending clause in the bottom margin. And the second feature I'd like to point out, along the bottom edge of the parchment are three horizontal slips. The British Museum, where this document used to be held, used to tell their visitors that those slips were made by King John attacking Magna Carta, stabbing it in a fit of rage. I, I hate to tell you, I hate to tell you that certainly the central slip is probably where the seal would have been attached in the Middle Ages, but maybe the romantic story of King John attacking it is a bit better. So our exhibition has had some absolutely rogue reviews, and I'll just put a few of them up here on the screen. Uh, the Telegraph, or the first people's reviewers, gave us five stars, simultaneously The Guardian, the same week that the Alexander McQueen exhibition opened at the V&A, The Guardian also reviewed our exhibition, named us Exhibition of the Week. I'm particularly fond, though, of your review in The Socialist Worker. And the reason for this is that I put together the exhibit list for our exhibition. We've got 200 items. Myself and my colleague Alex Locke, who was our researcher, we reviewed over 2,000 potential candidates to be shown in our exhibition. I focused primarily on the medieval story and Alex researched some of the modern items. 
The reviewer for The Socialist Worker proudly informed his readers that you think of the first half of the exhibition, the medieval evil section, a complete mess. But he did say that the rest of it is magnificent. <laughs> Alex, my, my colleague, absolutely loves that review. <laughs> so how can you find more about the British Library exhibition? I mentioned our website, the exhibition itself, still on until the 1st of September this year. We also have a series of essays and uh, all the items are illustrated in colour and described in the catalogue, which Claire and I edited with a selection of learned essays by experts in the field. And so we are, back to the beginning. Magna Carta, law, liberty, legacy. As we've described today, the exhibition could not have taken place without the assistance of the National Archives and other key institutions, and would particularly like to acknowledge, and with thanks, the assistance of our friends and colleagues at the National Archives for helping us to put this exhibition together. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.